Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Good morning. Today's reading is 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 to 7. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Saul had expelled the mediums and the wizard from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, not by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, so that I may go to her and inquire of her. His servant said to him, There's a medium at Endor. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There was a question last service by the scripture reader that if Samuel dies in 1 Samuel 28, then how do we get a second Samuel after that? Which I thought was a really good question. So um, just to clarify that when the, uh, New Te- or the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It was called the Septuagint, and they split up Samuel and Kings into First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. They used to be kind of one book that told the story of uh, Samuel anointing Saul, ultimately ending in the penultimate um, kingship of David, which is why uh, what the narrative of those stories are about. And so we're looking at a story within the, the larger story about Saul and about this character that um, has traditionally been known as the witch at Endor. If you read like the King James translation or some of the older translations, it's called the witch at Endor. And for those of you who are Star Wars fans, it's not this um, as the witch at Endor. Um, often it's, it's actually a better translation of the medium at Endor as it's referred to in the New Revised Standard Version. The medium at Endor is, uh, medium in general, is uh, somebody who would conjure up spirits of dead people so that uh, people like Saul could seek them for advice or blessing or future telling. Um, it's a little bit like going down to Austin with so many palm readers and fortune tellers and everything. So you can look into the future. You can see the blessing of the future. Uh, and we're going to find out what the Bible thinks about that here in a little bit. But I'm going to stick with calling her the witch at Endor because it helps us to look at how we have viewed witches uh, in media, our culture, throughout the generations. Um, for those of you who may have been alive in 1939, you could have seen the original airing of The Wizard of Oz, and you've got this evil, wicked witch of the West, and when um, she dies, and we get the uh, end scene of that in the play Wicked, people are celebrating her death. And in fact, when the Wicked Witch of the East dies, they're all singing, ding dong, the witch is dead. They are celebrating because it is so good to have this person removed uh, from existence. So we have this 
uh, terrible force of evil, the color green started getting used in Disney movies like Sleeping Beauty for Maleficent because uh, of the wicked, uh, the wicked Witch of the West was so bad. Now fast forward a little bit to 1993, you've got the movie Hocus Pocus. I saw it for the first time a couple nights ago. I don't know what all the fuzz is about, but, uh, but it's this cult classic of the Sanderson sisters who get brought back to life in this kind of weird ritual uh, sense. And, um, and they're still wicked, they're still evil in a slapstick kind of comedic way. So we're starting to loosen up a little bit and start to see a little bit more of uh, uh, having fun with the witch character. But then you get to, you know, 1998 when it's published, 2001, when the movie version out, comes out, and you all know who that person is over there. Say it with me, Hermione Granger, right? All the Harry Potter fans in the crowd. And Hermione Granger is not only the smartest, most accomplished one of the main trio in the books. She's also the moral compass to guide Harry and Ron as to what is right, what is wrong, what's uh, for the rules, what's against the rules. Sometimes she's a little stick in the mud about those kind of things, but she's still the moral compass for that group of friends and for that school. And so we went from this place in 1939 of witches are absolutely evil and wicked and terrible to this place in 2001 of the witch is actually like the moral compass and the blessing of those people. And we start to see this main narrative of grace of maybe what we once thought about somebody or some group of people is not exactly what is true once we experienced them, got to know them, had a little bit more exposure to them. And the Bible does this, well, the Bible does this with little characters often. The Bible will kind of self-critique, uh, it will critique itself with these stories that come along from what we thought we, what we once knew the Bible said to maybe start to get a little bit of a question. And the Bible does this to maintain this constant narrative um, throughout. So let's start with the wicked witch uh, in the Bible. If you go to Leviticus, and Leviticus is this, uh, it is the law for the Israelites while they are wandering through the wilderness. And if you think about, if I took a road trip with all of you right now, we left here and we just went along the southeast and then we turned up and went through the northeast and then passed through the Midwest, went over to the west coast, and we just spent 40 years walking around the United States, even in one country, we are going to find so many different cultures and ways of doing things. I have learned that they do not have gas stations like Bucky's in the northwest. Um, how they live, I have no idea. But they, you know, they don't have the same kind of foods. They don't listen to the same kind of music. There are just different things, different nuances about those cultures if we travel around. So as the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, they are experiencing the Philistines and the Canaanites and all these other cultures. And the primary concern of Leviticus, one of the reasons they don't eat shellfish and some of these other, uh, or don't get tattoos is one of the other things in there. The primary rationale for those laws in Leviticus is to distinguish them from the groups that they are passing through so that they maintain their loyalty to Yahweh. And, and idolatry is going to come in here in a little bit. And so we've got Leviticus 19.26, you shall not eat anything with its blood. Sorry for those of you who like rare steak. You shall not practice augury or witchcraft. You get a little bit further. Do not turn to mediums or wizards. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. That's kind of like a legal statement at the end. This is a definitive statement. I am the Lord your God. And the consequence for all of this in chapter 20, if you turn to mediums and wizards, prostituting themselves to them, I will set my face against them and will cut them off from the people. So this is some serious stuff. It's even referred to, the, the uh, story in 1 Samuel that we read 
is even referred to in First Chronicles. And, and Chronicles is just a retelling of Samuel and Kings from a different author's perspective. It's, if you ever get confused as you're reading through Kings, you get through Chronicles and it's the same story, just told a little differently. It's a different author telling the same story. So we get to Chronicles, who's referring to the, the story we're talking about today. And he says, so Saul died for his unfaithfulness. He was unfaithful to the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord. Moreover, he had consulted a medium seeking guidance and did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. This is not seen as a very positive action. As we get to Israel and the promised land, um, Deuteronomy is the law for the land. If Leviticus is the law for them wandering, Deuteronomy is the law for inhabiting the land and living as God's people in the land. So we get to chapter 18. No one shall be found among you who makes a son or daughter pass through fire or who practice divination or is a soothsayer or is an augur or a sorcerer or one who casts spells or who consults ghosts or spirits or who seeks oracles from the dead. For whoever does these things is abhorrent to the Lord. It is because of such abhorrent practices that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Unless we think this is just an Old Testament thing, we can go into Acts and there's this character in Acts chapter 8 named Simon who is able to do some sort of magical feats And people say above him, this man is the power of God that is called great. But in Acts chapter 8, Philip, one of the apostles, comes and starts preaching resurrection and preaching Jesus as the Son of God. And even Simon, with his great power, submits to Jesus and follows Philip wherever he goes. He kind of gives up his magic. And then we get to Acts chapter 19, we see a number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. When the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. And so we see this is not some small thing um, with the value. This is not some uh, just uh, small thing in the Bible. There is, um, you can see how, um, especially like when Harry Potter came out, I was downtown in um, Fort Worth playing this kind of Where's Waldo costume game with our um, campus ministry. They dressed me up as a wizard. As I walked through downtown Fort Worth and we walked by the AMC downtown Fort Worth right as the premiere for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was happening. So a bunch of people protesting that movie all looked at me dressed as a wizard and guess how they treated me, right? It was the only time I think I've ever really been burnt by a church group um, is because I was dressed like a wizard because there is very valid biblical reason. If you get in here and look at the legalism of the Bible, you can say that magic and sorcery and wizard and witchcraft, these are not godly things. But here's the difference. The difference is, as they're passing through these different uh, lands, as they're passing through these different people, as they're constantly surrounded by, again, Greek and Roman culture and various other cultures around them, they are meant to stay true to God. And the fear here is not Wingardium Leviosa or Hogwarts, right? The fear is not Dorothy and her magic uh, ruby shoes. The fear is um, ancestor worship. They would go to mediums, they would go to sorcerers, and they would ask them to conjure up these ancestors who would then give them blessing, who would show them the future, who would um, tell them some sort of of, uh, message from beyond. And the vision of this was not just my ancestors are in heaven looking down upon me and wishing me well. The vision was, uh, the fear was, uh, or I should say the threat was, is that they imagined their ancestors going up or being in Sheol or going to heaven or some sort of mystical realm where they became one uh, on par with God. And as they were on par with God, they could then speak uh, over and above God. So we see this story where, where Saul 
is already being, um, he's already been uh, cast out by God from his kingship. God has kind of turned God's back on Saul as a uh, effective leader, because Saul's already really turned his back on God. He's already gone into warfare without God's blessing. He started to look at himself as the tall, ready, and handsome man he's described as being. And so um, Saul kind of, Saul recognizes that God's already found disfavor with him. So he tries plan B. He goes to the medium and he says, who's the greatest human being I've ever known? It's Samuel. So let's conjure up the spirit of Samuel, and I can talk to Samuel, who's going to do this work around around God, and Samuel will over, you know, like trying to trump God's message, and I'll be okay as long as Samuel's on my side. And what Saul finds is that's not the case. And what we've all found, that's not really the case. Right? There is no one but God. Deuteronomy 6, what every Jewish person says in the morning, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Lord, I will uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the threat that magicians and wizards and witchcraft and augury and all these kind of things bring is not some cute message in a story. It is the very real threat of ancestor worship, of worshiping other gods. And you can look in the, and you have to understand the Old Testament, the Israelites are monodolatrous at best. It means they recognize other gods, but they worship one God. It's not until like the New Testament where we start getting into there is one God. So there's very real threat from these different things. So again, if you want to celebrate Halloween and have some fun, go celebrate the community of grace that passes out candy to complete strangers, right? If you want to read Harry Potter, go for it. There are gospel messages to be found in Harry Potter. It's just the concern in the Bible is looking at the ancestor worship of threatening one God versus multitude of gods or ancestors who take the place of gods. But altogether, right, if you're a Hebrew person reading this first Samuel text, you're hearing this story orally for the first time, you're walking into this with all of this baggage from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, First Chronicles, all of these stories, all of these laws about witchcraft being evil, being terrible. So when you approach the story of Saul going to visit this medium or this witch, who's naturally the hero that's going to come out of this? I mean, even if Saul has kind of lost God's favor, surely he's not as bad as the wicked witch of Eden, of um, what, Endor. Well, the story plays out, and he's already, you know, Saul asked this witch to conjure the spirit of Samuel, and you can see in the story where the witch is very tentative to do this. We talked about feelings in our difficult conversations groups that we did. Some of you may have been a part of those. We did online difficult conversations. We talked about um, uh, what, acknowledging the feelings you bring into a situation, how you're receiving something, how you're giving something, and imagine the feelings that this witch has. I mean, there's got to be some burning anger in there. Saul has already expelled all of the mediums and witches, as the law tells him to do. He's already cast them out of their livelihood. He's already told them their abominations before the Lord. And so there's got to be some anger of, how could you dare come to me after you've treated me this way? There's got to be some fear in there, because if the king of Israel shows up who's already cast you out, you're more than likely going to be arrested or dead. There's all sorts of reasons why this woman should not help Saul at all. But when Saul gets this message from Samuel, she's able to conjure up the spirit of Samuel in the story, and, and Samuel basically tells Saul what God would say is, you've lost favor. You lost your way. I'm sorry I can't help you. And then Samuel disappears, and the one feeling, the one emotion that we tend to always be able to unite in is grief and empathy. 
with that grief. This woman knows what it's like to be kicked out. This woman knows what it's like to be hated. This woman knows what it's like to be called an abomination. And now Saul is on his knees in despair, not having eaten for days because, because his future is lost. And this woman has every right just to stand over him and tell him, I told you so. This woman has every right just to kick him out of her house. But the witch at Endor looks at Saul and says, I'm going to make you some bread. And she has a fatted calf, so she goes out and she kills the fatted calf. She makes this feast for this hurting man because no longer is he the guy who kicked her out or called her an abomination. In his grief, she recognizes that he's just a person. And in this story, the Bible critiques itself that maybe all these wicked witch of the West aren't so bad after all. Maybe there's some redemption there, right? This story... uh, This story interrupts the narrative of the Bible in which all of these witches were terrible and now all of a sudden the witch is the one who shows grace. The witch is the one who shows love. The witch is the one who shows service to the least and the lost and the one who has no hope. And if we look at what God said in his son Jesus Christ, we'll find you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus would go further than this and say, Even the Gentiles can love somebody who is totally like them. But you're God's people, so love your enemies. It goes on, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Who would we have expected to be the hero of this story even though he's fallen from God's grace? Saul. But who's the supporting cast character that the Bible uses to put us right on the right track? God does big things with little people. And some of those little people are people that we have made little, that we have belittled, that we have cast fear upon. Some of those people that God uses are the ones that we have told are abominations or abhorrent or wicked. Those people that we look at and we say, well, I would never help you. Whether they've hurt us personally or just culture has told us that they're evil. And yet here's the witch. The wicked witch. Who shows us more of what Jesus has to say than the king of Israel who is supposed to be the standard bearer for all things of righteousness. The Bible critiques itself a lot. There are stories in there that we might have missed that critique these commonly held assumptions to get us back on track of the main narrative of grace, the main narrative of forgiveness, the main narrative of what God's kingdom is supposed to be about, the love that we see through Jesus Christ. And I wonder if this story doesn't challenge us about someone who we may have withheld grace from recently. I wonder if there's somebody that we just... Well, someone who hurt us, someone we hate, someone we've been taught to think is an abomination. And I wonder if we can't get to know them and wonder, maybe they're not that bad after all. I wonder if there's something that you've thought, well, God certainly can't be in this. This is just the most evil thing in the world. I wonder if you can ask the question, where is God in this? 
As the Bible likes to surprise us, I won't say it tricks us and gives us treats, but I will say it surprises us and blesses us by helping us critique. Pastor Carrie Lynn has been saying this phrase that I love and that the Holy Spirit surprises us. And then one of our jobs is to open ourselves up to the surprise that the Spirit has to offer us that day. So I wonder if the challenge is for whoever it is that you just can't consider grace for. Whatever thing you consider evil in this world. Well, I wonder if our spirit might surprise us today. And you might find God where you least expected. Let's pray. Gracious God, we heed the warning to not find our hope and future in any other God or idol but you. We heed the warning. We pay attention to what you're telling us to stay the straight and narrow, to honor you in all things. And in honoring you, God, as we submit to your lordship and your authority, may you continue to surprise us with who we are able to love, who we are able to see blessing in, who we are, who we are able to be blessed by and to, be bless, and to bless in return. May you continue to open our eyes and our hearts to those people who we've cast aside who greatly need to feel your love just as we do. And so God, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our arms, open our hands to be your people so we might love even our enemies. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.